turn, if you will, to the insert that's in your bulletin. We skipped over this part of 1 Corinthians 3 so that we could return to it and treat it on its own because it can stand on its own and because it is always, always, always important in the life of any church. The situation in Corinth is Paul had planted this church. He's gone. The church has all kinds of problems. Because people are quarrelsome, they are jealous, they are preoccupied with worldly standards of success. And the Apostle Paul challenges them. They were playing Christian leaders off one against another, Paul and Apollos and Peter. And so Paul writes, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe. In other words, only servants. Through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, fair enough. Apollos watered, sure he did. He was Paul's helper, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. And now all of a sudden, Paul dramatically changes the metaphor from a field to a building. You are God's building. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. He planted the church. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, do you see the descending order there? Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. There was one thing that terrified me when I played on the freshman football team in high school, and that was running the gauntlet. The team would form a long line from front to back, two players would stand next to each other and then two players behind them with just enough room for a player to go between. And every team member had to run through that. Only you didn't simply try to squeeze between these two guys. Each guy on the side would crouch low and heave up with his shoulder at the same time one on your left and one on your right, trying to throw you backwards as you were coming through. I should have never been playing football in the first place. (laughs) I was a terrible athlete as a kid. 
I was so bad that one day before a Little League game, my father came to me and he said, Ronnie, look, it's not important today whether you win or lose. The important thing is that nobody finds out you're my son. <laughs> I, I actually got that from a late night comedian, but, um, but the shoe fits. This passage in front of us is about a gauntlet that is coming and will have to be run. Not through the heaving shoulders of young boys, as threatening as that can be, but through fires, the divine fires, the fires of the white-hot purity that is the character of the living God. Now, the good news is that the warning here does not directly apply to a lot of you this morning. It applies directly to those who teach and lead God's people in the church. It may also have secondary implications for all Christians who teach in some way, shape, or form. That's much more difficult to discern. The bad news is that Paul will write something very similar to this warning in his second letter to the Corinthian church. And there, it clearly applies to every professed believer, even every true believer, that there is a time coming when, although you will be saved by the grace of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, if your confidence has been placed in him, covering your faults as he does, he, the Lord of glory, will still, as a judge, Review your life and make judgments about the choices that you have made, the actions you have taken or not taken, the things you have said and done or not said and not done, and the reasons why. And on that day, there will be, for each of us, a reckoning. Now, in the providence of God, I was sick last week, and Joseph preached on the grace of God that has come to us in Jesus Christ, all that he has won for us in his sacrificial dying and in his great resurrection into an immortal life, even though we deserve none of that kindness. That is exactly the backdrop that we need for this sermon today, which is about the judgment of God, about his holiness. Now, if you are feeling weak in your faith this morning, like you can just barely hang on and can't hear a sermon about the judgment of God, it may be that you just should tune out. Put it on the back burner for now. And if you have not tasted the grace of God, then thinking about his coming judgment of your life will only terrify you. It will not redirect you to the cross as God intends it to do. Joseph stressed in his sermon that grace is no good unless we bring it into our living. But with grace as the starting point, Christ crucified, Christ risen for our sake, and we 
trusting in that, nestling in that by faith, as it were. Then, the warnings in Scripture about the coming judgment can actually be like cool breezes blown through a stale room because it can lead us to humility, to repentance, and to reform. Without grace, we can so easily despair over these warnings or else we dismiss them. Hey, I live by grace. I don't really have to worry about these things. But friends, here is the truth in this text that grace is holy. And therefore, you had better heed the warning that you cannot mess with God's grace toward his people without serious consequence. Do you ever struggle, like I do, to hang on to the grace and the mercy and love of God and yet also his holiness at the same time? Everywhere in the scriptures, there is this kind of carefree mingling of God's grace and his holiness, his tremendous mercy, but then also his severity, his sweet, sweet promises. And then all of a sudden, plop, there comes a warning, right, set down in the midst of them. What God has so richly and wonderfully done for us. And then a very sobering statement about not presuming upon his kindness. You see, God's grace and his holiness are like two vines, just wonderfully and inseparably combined in so many places in the scriptures. Here in 1 Corinthians 3 is such a place. And you ask, well, how so? As we read this, we're thinking, oh my, God is severe, isn't he? He's burning up the life's work of Christian leaders. He saves them, yes, by the skin of their teeth. But he's always watching, always measuring, always judging. I'm not sure I can trust a God like that. Besides, I thought he was a tender father. Here he comes across much more like an angry judge. But friends, look what is here. That grace is holy is reflected in this, that God's severity with Christian leaders here is driven by his passionate love for his people. First, let's take this, the church as God's house. Look at verse 9. You, you Corinthians, are God's field, God's building. Now, Paul uses the word very similar to our word building. Our word building could refer to the Scott Trade Center or an outhouse in your backyard. Same word in Greek. But as Paul moves on, the metaphor sharpens so that by the time we get to the end, by the time we get to verse 16, Paul is no longer talking about a building in the abstract, but a particular kind of building. And so there he says, do you not know that you plural, are God's temple. And what is a temple? A temple is a house for a God. So the church is God's house. Well, then we ask, what is a house? A house is where you live, commonly with people that you love. 
And according to Isaiah 66, your house is a place where you rest or relax. God's house is the place where he rests. And friends, that is right here. Not in this building, but among you. That's where God finds his rest, in you, collectively, as a people. Now, we call this place a sanctuary, which means what? A holy place. But we do that only for one reason. Because on the day that he has ordained, the first day of the week, resurrection morning, this holy God meets with his holy people in this place and spends time with them. Look at verse 16. Don't you know that you are God's house, his temple? Guess what else? Not only are you all together as Old Orchard Church the place where God wants to live, he's actually home. Even in ancient Corinth, as messed up as the church was, somebody divine was home in that quarrelsome church, that messed up temple of God, that house of God that was being trashed, like a house gets trashed, by jealousy and one-upmanship, by the obscuring of the power of Jesus and his cross and resurrection. Nevertheless, God was still home. And that's why Paul adds in verse 16, don't you know that God's spirit dwells, rather than translate in here, much better to translate among you. The you is plural. God is in your midst. And then Paul's going to say it even more radically in verse 17. God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. You, Corinthians, in spite of your disobedience, in spite of the hardness of your heart, you are still counted holy, made so by love, by precious, costly, long-suffering, redeeming, and undeserved love of the crucified Jesus. And all of that just for the asking because it can only be received and enjoyed by simple faith. Now, friends, I ask you, what could be more grace-laced than that? It's right here in the text. God the Holy wanting to take up his residence, his place to settle in among the likes of unholy me and unholy you. And that grace is exactly what is driving the coming gauntlet of fire. Because God loves so much those that he lives with, that whoever starts messing with them, that's like somebody starting to mess 
with a two-month-old baby with his mom looking on. What happens? That mom becomes a mother bear. And so does God. In verses 16 and 17, Paul just bluntly says it. He doesn't try to soften it and sweeten it to make it go down easier. He says, you are God's temple. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. End of story. In-your-face truth for those who would build recklessly upon the only foundation of the church God loves. Jesus Christ. Well, where's the gauntlet? Let's trace it out from verse 9. You are God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Someone else is building upon it. Paul is now in Ephesus. He's not there anymore. Other teachers have taken his place. Some of them are dubious. Some are dubious in their teaching. They're preoccupied with worldly standards of success for the church. They're dubious in their character. They're puffed up with pride. There is jealousy. They have a competitive spirit. And remember, friends, that teachers teach not only with words, but especially with their actions. So here comes the warning in verse 10. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, that is, on this foundation. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, and everything that flows from that. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, that is the coming day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This is actually an incredibly dramatic metaphor here. You have to imagine a whole house together with its foundation passing through a fire. And that's what made me think of a gauntlet. A whole house on its foundation going through a gauntlet of flamethrowers, as it were. Now, what exactly is the house? Is the house the sum total of the teaching of Christian leaders, that is, their words and their deeds? Or is the house that passes through the flames of God's righteousness shooting out from both sides as it goes through is at the church. Believers who have been taught. If it's the latter, it would mean that the testing of my work here, the testing of other pastors and elders here, will be, in the end, how much of it stuck on you and in your life, how much of it really bore true and lasting fruit. Well, this is like a lot of places we shouldn't press the metaphor too far. It's difficult to be quite sure, but the main point is clear. Whatever 
in the ministry of Christian leaders has been out of sync with God's character, out of sync with his truth, out of sync with who he is. All of that will be burned away, and they will lose a reward they might have had, and they will suffer in the losing of it. Though, in fact, they will go on to eternal life. Now, it's also implied, I think, that either these leaders are in the house as it goes through the flames, or at least they are watching. If they have built with the gold, the silver, the granite of sound teaching and exemplary living, at least to some substantial degree, their house will survive the flames. And according to verse 14, they will receive a reward. It's not eternal life, this reward. That's for everybody who trusts. We know that from verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he himself will be saved. He's going to receive eternal life too. But he will suffer loss. He'll be saved only as through fire. Now, I have this image in my mind I am dazed and singed as I come out of this fiery gauntlet. I'm standing on a solid concrete foundation. But as I look around, I see nothing but a chimney. Do you remember those pictures a couple of years ago from the wildfires in California? These cul-de-sacs with huge mansions, and everything is gone except the chimney in each house. And I have this image of me standing there, alive, on my way to glory for sure, but singed, shocked, filled with shame, and silent before my righteous Father and before my utterly pure and humble Savior. Only a chimney left of what I have built into your lives for 35 years. Because I built far too much with wood, with hay, with straw, with just things like human insight, or worse, arrogance, carelessness, unbelief. And you see, it is not enough to simply be afraid of that outcome. What leaders are called to do is to guard themselves against it. A place only has to be 125 degrees for a straw to self-ignite. If you want to see wood self-ignite, depends on the species, but it's anywhere from 300 degrees to 500 degrees. But you can heat gold to 1,900 degrees, and it will still not melt. What does Paul intend for this dramatic metaphor to produce in the Corinthian church. It should be obvious. Fear. 
not craven fear, not worldly fear, not the fear that leads to despair, that leads to being eaten alive by anxiety and a resenting bitterness, but a godly fear full of reverence, awe, full of humility, and a sober decision to trust that God means what he says when he tells us that he wants to live with us here in our church family, that he is here with us as broken as we are, and that being with us somehow actually delights him and makes him feel like he's at home. I'll confess to you that's doctrine for me. I believe it because I think it's true. But I am far away from truly and profoundly enjoying it. You know, I've wrestled deeply with this sermon because we're modern people. Everything in our consciousness now in our psyche is programmed for affirmation and for thinking positively about ourselves. How can I help you see that godly fear is a profoundly important part of what your life and my life is supposed to be about? Godly fear, not the craven worldly fear. And that's true, whether you're a leader or whether you are not. Remember that Paul writes this to the whole congregation because everyone has a part to play in the discerning of leaders and whether what they teach is true and whether what they live is in sync with what they teach. What's the key? Well, of course, it's grace, love, and mercy coming from God. And we do not deserve it. That's where we start. But then we are to learn that grace is holy. We start with it. We cling to it ever so tightly that God is our Father who wants to be at home with us. But he is also God the Holy. And he is jealous for the costly sacrifice his beloved son made at the cross for the sake of you and me. And he is jealous for our well-being, for his eternal son's brothers and sisters. I'm going to leave you with a short prayer. It's an old Celtic prayer that picks up this imagery of God being pleased to live with us. And we, resting in, nestling down, in that fatherly care, finding our greatest comfort in his nearness. As a father sometimes lies down with his children at bedtime. Because you also do that in a house. You sleep in it. And so the prayer goes this way. I will lie down this night with God. And God will lie down with me. I will lie down this night with Christ and Christ will lie down with me. I will lie down this night with the Spirit and the Spirit will lie down with me. God and Christ and the Spirit be lying down with me. The peace of God be over me 
to shelter me, under me, to uphold me, around me, to protect me, behind me, to direct me, ever with me, to save me. The peace of all peace be mine this night. Friends, when we pray like that, with a soft heart toward the Lord, and mean it ever so sincerely, that's when God manifests himself as being, living among us. And that's when, by his holy grace, he uses us in a world that so needs to know our Savior, even the Lord Jesus. Amen.